at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to a, a very special episode of the Curiosity Habit today. I appreciate having a, a real audience today, which is nice to see the faces. I, I'm going to invite most of you to have your camera on uh, and the, the microphones off, so we can at least see your faces and, and engage with you as we go through this conversation. It is a great pleasure for me, not only because they are my colleagues and my friends at the center, but also because of the how useful and how much impact this book is making already, even though it just has been published. I got a, a little text here from Kathy Heber, who says, Thanks. unfortunately, she cannot make it today, but she wants to congratulate, congratulate you both and tell you that her graduate students have said it is exactly what they needed. So congratulations on that Thanks, and having those positive uh, responses. So we're having today uh, as guests, uh, Lorelai and Chris, who are the authors of the book, Story North Study, 30 Brief Lessons to Inspire Health Researchers as Writers. So we're going to go, and um, first of all, I would like to say thank you to all well, of you who sent I think questions. We have plenty of questions for a, for a conversation. <laughs> However, so I'm going to invite you to, the to write a few now, more in the chat. And if we have time at the end, we're going to incorporate them. Minds, if not, so I will apologize, but I would like to go through the questions that we already received, which I hope it will make for an engaging conversation as we go other Let's start then. Welcome, Lorelai and Chris. And I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for being with us today. Now, and for longer than that, we've okay. all been working as so. The first question that our audience wanted to know about regarding the book is: and you have been teaching and writing about academic writing for a so long time. Why this so book and why now? And yet, most of us are ill-equipped to know just exactly what feedback to give. We often know instinctively that the writing could be better, but putting our finger on why and how is more difficult. So for me, it was really a matter of addressing a need that I have have known was there. Um, and I've been addressing that. <laughs> well, in my head for years I mean, my answer is slightly different. When Lorelai Lindyard asks, asks you if you want to join her in writing a book, you just say yes. Uh, I think that's that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, but I, I would also, I want to give a nod to the journal Perspectives on Medical Education, which um, was really open to Lorelai's idea of uh, establishing this writer's craft section um, where she and then later I got a chance to um, offer little kind of efforts to encapsulate advice in particular areas of writing um, in sort of short digestible bits. Um, and I think we were both really um, kind of heartened and encouraged by the response to that, by how much people downloaded it and how much they liked it and and a real sense that there was more to say uh, and that we wanted to be able to, um, to be part you of know, this? sort of put something together in a way that would be a little bit more fulsome. <laughs> well, it was a bit of an iterative process. Um, we had a couple of principles that we started with. We really liked the idea of um, short lessons. Uh, we wanted to kind of, we wanted to construct a book that although you could read it from front to back, if that's what you wanted to do, um, that you could also take pieces of it and revisit certain parts and go out of order uh, in terms of being able to visit the things that were most meaningful. So we had that kind of general structure in mind that we wanted to have a series of lessons. Um, we, we were um, enthusiastic about the opportunity to lengthen some of the lessons mm -hmm. a little bit so compared to the writer's that, craft. The writer's from craft the writer's is quite short to the book, um, and often didn't give us as much opportunity as we might have liked to, to share examples book. or to really How try to bring things to life. What what but we like the general principle that, 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 that shorter is better than longer. So while we extended things a little bit, I, we, we did try to 
sort of keep an eye on the idea that we wanted people to be able to read and digest things in, in you know, in little bits that weren't going to make them roll their eyes and feel like it was just too too much to try to get through. So th those were some of the structural things, a little more flexibility to explore things in more depth than in the journal, a few more opportunities to provide examples, um, a, a little bit of a sense of filling in some of the, the gaps in the, in the story that weren't really being told by those individual pieces but still a commitment to trying to make it hopefully, you know, easy to read and, and then also fun to read. I mean, that was, that was our other goal anyway, is we, we wanted it to be kind of enjoyable to read, easy to read. I think what I, oh, very sorry, I was just gonna add that I think if anyone is interested in writing a book, they should probably not do it the way we did it because we did it backwards. We had the book sort of two thirds written and then we wrote a book proposal and sent it to a publisher. We did that on purpose because we didn't wanna propose a book and get ourselves into a contract and then realize partway through the writing that that wasn't the book we wanted to write. So the, you know, Two thirds of the chapters were written when we submitted the book proposal. And we did sort of have a moment of pause and think we're going to feel awfully foolish if this book proposal doesn't get accepted. Um, so we did it sort of backwards. Mm -hmm. Lorelai, on that note, go ahead. Um, there were a few things that were that the reviewers, we got some very thoughtful reviews on the book proposal. And there were a few chapters that people wanted that weren't in the outline we'd proposed. Um, there was a perception from reviewers that it would be really beneficial to have a chapter on the responding to peer review process. And that it would be also really helpful to have a chapter mm -hmm. on. And I was um, actually wondering about that notion of leaving one, things out. If you wrote part of the book before that. the book proposal, I think a opinion. couple of things what got was left one out. of two things um, that you had I probably to more in their not include more than anyone else will. There were was a couple any, of more anything that you thought I really wanted, but which you I had to leave out. Yeah, I was going to write a whole. I was going to write a whole chapter on semicolons. I think. That, 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 some, that, that somehow got lost on the editing room floor. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and it would have been so great, and it'll have to be a writer's room. Hmm. Hmm. It's something that we address throughout the book because the story not study hmm. concept okay. well, is somebody... not, it's not a rule. It's not an equation. We don't tell you <laughs> put two parts story and one part story here and one part study and one part story here. We don't tell you that. What we try and do is, is get Well, definitely. I would say we'd be so grateful um, for people, people whose first language is not English because there are some, di some different books to look into that, but I that probably is another book and later on unfortunately, in the process. Cares Somebody was wondering about the boundaries between a story and a study. And the specific and so question is, how do you mitigate the dangers of cherry picking when telling a story from a study? Our impression of how story and study can coexist in every section of a manuscript. And so there's no rule, and we try and give examples from different kinds of health research manuscripts that are published to show how it can look different. It's not about cherry picking. It's not about you know being inaccurate or trying to be emotional or seductive or trying to incite people. It's not about that. It's about crafting the tale of what you learned in a way that would be compelling to read. And we can do that without sacrificing 
accuracy and scientific credibility. And that's what we try and work through. And I think probably every chapter of the book in some way or another. Well, that, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, and um, I, I mean, I think there there are a number of issues there. But if I think a little bit about the role of a senior author um, from a writing standpoint, not so much about sort of taking responsibility for the the you know the the guidance around the rigor of the scientific work, but when you think about the writing part of it. Um, one of the interesting challenges, so particularly if you are a writer with a strong book, voice uh, yourself, the two of you are very or if you're somebody who writing, cares a lot about writing, this authorship, um, is one of the how to make sure that if you're not the first author, how do you that you're not imposing your voice, or author, but that you might actually book, be particularly um, finding moments of your own writing voice that can enhance the work. And trying to get that balance right, I think, is quite tricky. One of the things that I think is helpful is to be fairly mindful in the way that you offer feedback to the, the lead author on the, on the work. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I try to do, and I know that Lorelai tries to do uh, when she gives feedback as well, is, is the idea that you're going to offer some comments and some options and some thoughts about why something doesn't necessarily resonate and maybe why a different approach might be better as opposed to rewriting. It's really, really tempting uh, when you're the senior author to just put on the track changes and start recrafting sentences and you can get carried away with it and suddenly the whole thing starts to sound like you and not like the author that's actually creating it. Um, I think if you discipline yourself to use more comments and less track changes, um, then it actually forces you to think about why am I dissatisfied with the way that this is written? Uh, why do I think something might be stronger? What persuasive purpose might be served if this were changed? And to try to articulate that. If you can articulate it well, then first of all, it probably helps the lead author. But second, there probably is a, a good rationale for it. If you struggle to articulate it, then maybe you're just dealing with a style preference. And sometimes if it's just a style preference, you might be best to step back and say, you know, this is not my piece of work. Uh, and it's okay if somebody expresses this in, in, in a different way. I think it's a really tough thing to do though. You know, I, 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 it always reminds me of kind of the work of really great interior designers who can design a room for you not designing a room that they would necessarily want to live in. And that must be a real talent to be able to say, my preference is over here. I would never live in this, but this feels like it actually uh, suits you well. And this is what I want to deliver. And trying to get a little bit of that into how you coach writing is a, is a, it's a work in progress, I think, for lots of us. I think what the only thing I would add to that um, is that as we're trying to think about, am I inserting my voice into this other writer's piece of work? You need to have a language for telling yourself what your voice is. So Chris and I are currently doing a study on writer's voice. We're interested in writers who seem to have voice and their awareness of that voice the extent to which they are being purposeful about it, can they identify how they're doing it? And I think um, if you are a writer who has voice and is trying not to cross that line of infusing somebody else's manuscript with your voice, it helps to be able to say, here's how I would write this because this is my voice. Your voice is different. It, sometimes it helps to give people a model to say, I'm not saying write it this way. This is how I would write it, but my voice, here's what I'm aiming for. What are you aiming for? and have that conversation. The other thing I would add is a confession. And that is that, you know, nine times out of 10, I can abide by the strategy that Chris just so nicely laid out. But then there comes along that study that you think has such a potential to change the conversation in the field. 
um, that I will find myself almost inevitably slipping over that line. And I try and have a conversation with the writer about, about that. I say, you know what, I think this has such a huge ability to crack open a new conversation. I really want us to make it as compelling as we can. And I'll sometimes ask permission to co-write more than I would usually, because I just don't want to lose the chance that that manuscript might have to change the way we think about something. Well, I, I think that's a great comment from uh, Christina and, and from Lorelai. I think um, while I actually do think that it's a good idea to try to give comments that still leave somebody the, the job of doing the revisions on their own, um, there's also a lot of value in role modeling things. Just be explicit about it. You know, um, do you mind if I take a stab at rewriting this paragraph? Uh, and sometimes, actually, people will learn as much from just seeing how and you have. I think that comment is, is very relevant to what Christina just put in the chat about to do it. Uh, so being someone it, it who is, is a bit of a balance. As a writer, uh, it can be lovely to, to have a, a senior model or how something can look. It's just nice to kind of ask permission rather than to just assume that somebody is comfortable with you rewriting their work. That you can use to help, especially junior trainees in in either having the, the conversation with the senior author or doing something on their own? Mm -hmm. Moving on, uh, oh, we have another comment from Stella. I always appreciate it when Laura and I will correct okay, a well, sentence one of the and first provide the underlying theory as to why she was making those edits. I learned so much uh, from I that approach. Same here, I think. Opinion. Same for everyone. And so the other thing that I was reflecting on that is also for junior writers, giving themselves permission to ask the, the more senior author um, about, I think the can you other, help me? I, I think the other can you, I'm struggling with this paragraph. Can you help me make it, it better? I guess it's, it's from my point of view, that would be another way, another thing to try. And that is the next question the is directed to Lorelai specifically. So I learned You transition from writing for a rhetoric audience to writing for a medical education audience. What were your most shocking or amusing because humanities scholars journey. write books. That's the big goal. You try and turn your doctoral research into a single book, not four or five small original research manuscripts. <laughs> so that was a huge shift for me. And I, and I, I almost wonder whether sometimes people will say to me, well, why is it you have all these explicit strategies about the genre of the research mm -hmm. manuscript? And I think it's because I had to learn it late, relatively late in my own development as a, as a scholar. It's not something I wrote as a graduate student in the way that our doctoral students will write a series of empirical manuscripts. I didn't do that, I learned it late. And so I think just like people who learn a second language, um, they know the grammar often better than we do as first language speakers. So the grammar of that article, I came to it late. And I think as a consequence, it's never left me that it is a set of strategies. It, it was never internalized for me. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, you know, to be honest, um, Lorelai and I had written a fair bit together already. And so there weren't a lot of surprises about the writing or about the writing process. And I will say that one of the reasons why this was easy and fun to do is we have fairly uh, compatible and comparable writing styles and writing philosophies. Um, I guess one thing that I learned, and it relates 
to that last question uh, is that Lorelai was far more anxious than okay, I we're was now into about how this book might be received by anybody that knew the anything about is, language or rhetoric. What surprised you or what did you learn um, about the because, other and, person uh, you know, that you it just were not never really occurred to me to uh, that there book would together. be any pushback I'll um, start with uh, from, from those uh, kinds of groups. So I think the... Um, uh, what I sometimes saw is a little bit of a struggle to balance kind of this desire for credibility in uh, with an audience that I was actually not aiming to speak to. Um, that 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 was not really a surprise, but it was it was a bit interesting, and we had some you know conversations about sort of where some of those more complex or technical chapters, which are largely written by Lorelai, where 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 they needed to be pitched, and how to kind of you know, achieve that balance between speaking to the audience that was our primary audience and making sure that if a linguist accidentally stumbled on this book, uh, that, you know, they, they, they would not just cringe at reading it. Well, as, as Chris said, we had written together a lot before the book. So I think we knew each other as writers quite well. But when you write in bulk like that, when there are a few hundred pages, you do pick up uh, one another's idiosyncrasies. So Chris picked up some of mine. So I have kind of an issue with cadence. I like words to have the same number of syllables. So I like threes. I like verbs to come in threes and I like them all to have three syllables as well. And I don't even notice it anymore. I just do it I unconsciously. Do. And Chris would kind of say, you might be overdoing this just a little bit. Um, but right back at you, Chris Watling, because you love the semicolon. And so you don't notice it until you what see about the you, volume Lorelei? of text. And then you realize, oh, man, these little, little idiosyncrasies that we each have are sort of overwhelming. And we can see one another's more readily than we can see our own. You don't pick them up in a 3,000-word paper in the same way. Dear. <laughs> so I can tell you one that Chris doesn't have because anyone who's ever written with me for more than one paper never has it after the first paper. And that's the phrase as such. There are some people on this call who I've co-authored with and I just can't bear it. And it's one that's of the like actually a great segue into the next question. So those kind of different behaviors that we, you picked from each other. But what about unconscious expression um, crutches? It doesn't mean anything to you. So we um, all Chris have expressions or that's, words that's or sentences uh, or phrases like that we tend to use a lot. So this person wants to know, Chris, not what really are Lorelai's expression crutches and vice versa? Lorelai, what are Chris's expression crutches um, that you could identify? But because we both like to do it, um, our, there are little butts everywhere in our writing when we first draft I, things. And um, we well, first, I only I ever wrote as such in one thing that you were a co-author on. It got immediately removed and I've never written it again. So thank you for that. I think my writing's stronger for it. Um, Lorelai does one thing that I sometimes suggest she change and I, I mostly just live with. Um, and it's a similar, I don't like it only because my uh, high school English teacher hated it and corrected it in my writing, oh. which is that she sometimes starts sentences with this without actually saying this what. And it's almost because she's a good, great at constructing paragraphs. It's almost always dead obvious what this <laughs> refers to. But actually a lot of people do that and it's not always clear what this refers to. So my, my uh, high school English teacher called that the dangling this. And uh, it's, um, if, I, if I see that as a pet peeve in other people's uh, writing that I usually correct um, for no particular reason, that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. my version of as such, which I would go and try to correct in other people's writing.
Yes. Should I go first? Um, the most rewarding one is super easy for me. Uh, I've managed to quote a Dolly Parton song and not get it taken I out in the copy editing that, process. Chris, I have many comments. So that was my say, most rewarding moment about? of writing this book. <laughs> I'm part of that. Over to you, Lorelai. Okay, I'm going to take a moment to invite the people in the audience to post your questions on the chat. We might have a few minutes at the end, so feel free as we continue having the conversation. So the next question is, you both oh. enjoy writing thoroughly. I don't, I'm not here. sure there is. But what was the most frustrating moment, moment when writing I mean, the I've content been asked of this book and vice people. versa? What has been the most rewarding book? one so far? So I could improve my writing. Um, and so me, for me, being able to say that is actually crafted for the express purpose of someone sure. like you dipping in and out to improve their writing. For, for mm -hmm. me, that's the, that's the major accomplishment. And it's the part that I feel best about. Yeah. Um, I think one of the potential frustrations uh, we actually delegated to somebody else who did a fantastic job of creating the index and making sure all the references were uh, were done properly. But that kind of administrivia of book writing doesn't appeal to either one of us. And so um, we just found someone who was skilled in that and paid them right. to support that part of the book. Um, I think another, um, well, okay, I think another really good thing about the book um, something that makes me happy when I think about it. It's not a moment in the writing, but something that makes me happy when I think about it is the tightness of the chapters. So one of the things I learned in the transition from the humanities to the health sciences um, is that just because you could say more doesn't mean you should say more. And so the, the, the chapters are really tight and yet they manage to make allusion to the disciplines like linguistics or composition theory underneath if people care to learn more there are references they can go and read but they're they're just really bite-sized and that's not well i was trying to think to i realized i dodged the question about what was the that. most frustrating part um this um it, this is probably the least frustrating thing that i've ever written um and that's not to say that it was always easy to write but i always mm -hmm. had a really um a really strong sense that it was that it was worthwhile that it was a piece of something that was was hopefully going to be meaningful um i i think you know there are some chapters that flowed more easily than others um i and and the the the, the pieces that were more about what what always feel to me like very technical aspects of the writing i I maybe didn't enjoy writing as much. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I wrote a chapter about abstracts, writing abstracts, uh, and one about methods. And and those feel very technical uh, uh, to me. And and so like when we think about um, the the art of persuasive storytelling, uh, it felt a little bit further removed from those. And so it wasn't exactly frustrating, but it was, I will say, a useful exercise to think about um, what is the role of persuasive storytelling in those very technical parts of a manuscript in the abstract and in, in, in the methods part. And, and can I say something that's still useful um, when we're talking about those things that um, that may not feel very much like a story. So not frustrating, but I think that was that was an interesting exercise. Um, I know Lorelai and I, I think had a, a shared lack of enthusiasm for trying to do anything about methods, for example, because we kind of thought, well, it's not very much uh, 
uh, part of the telling of the story. And there's so much variety and methods that how could how could we possibly craft a chapter that would be meaningful to anybody? So there were some parts of this that I think required a bit more head scratching in terms of what are we going to do here? Uh, is there a is there a you know a, a contribution that we can make in this area or not? Well, and in fact, it's that's one of the chapters I'm really proud of because what, what we ended up coming up with through this process Chris has described of thinking, well, what on earth are we going to say about methods? We've actually outlined the rhetorical moves required in any method section, regardless of what kind of research you're doing. And I think that's enormously valuable. Yeah, and yet uh, when we did the masterclass, the, the virtual one this year, that methods chapter got a huge review because people found it so helpful. Lorelai? I think the person is, is absolutely on point with that. We would be part of the conversation that suggests that some of the difficulties with science communication, both amongst experts and out in the, in the rest of the world, one of the difficulties with uptake and with truly building it and was. translating knowledge Okay, uh, somebody is um, curious about care. the title. And we the, the part of the title that is story notice study. And this person is curious to, to know if there was an intent neutral, behind it in relation to science communication in general. And what do you hope? If, trying to do if not, then is there a hope for that message to come across? And one as of well. the things I say is can we please stop pretending we're disinterested about our research? We're not disinterested. We can be measured but we don't need to be disinterested. So yes, we think that people should be able to express their research knowledge in a way that is compelling. And, and I think that that's true both within your really tight disciplinary conversation where we also tend often not to be terribly surprised or intrigued by one another's most recent study. And more broadly in the world, if you know, if if a neighbor was going to ask you, what are you working yeah, on? Yeah, I think we we just did the title care, does try really to embed that that idea. Um, I, I think it also acknowledges that people need to get over a little bit the their discomfort with the word story when it comes to scientific work, uh, and I think through the. So the, the title, I guess, confronts you a little bit with that. But then through the, through the book, there, there is really a lot of attention to that, uh, which is to say, you know, we are, we are not talking about a fictional story. Um, we are not talking about um, wildly exaggerated stories. But we're talking about the fact that per, for probably all of us, when we think about that occasional paper that we've come across, where we think, wow, that's great. And we want to share it with others and say, you got to read this. Um, hopefully, it's because the science is good. Chris, anything but else? But often, the, the additional thing that makes you want to share it and go back to it and makes you remember it is the way that it's written, the way that you're kind of brought into the story that you can relate to the story, that the, the reason that the work is meaningful is made plain, um, and that you're left with a really compelling sense of what you now know and what you can now do or how you might now think about something. Um, you, you, you can write dense, hard to digest prose and still have that effect if the quality of the work, you know, the, the substance of the work is just so great that people can't ignore it. Um, but, you know, you can also undermine very, very good work by not giving the writing of it the attention that it deserves. And by not thinking a little bit about some of those, those, those ways in which you draw people into the story. And um, so that's kind of what we wanted to, to get right off the bat with the, uh, with the title.
Uh, yeah, I, I, I can start. I mean, I think, I think a right, uh, I think a writer's voice is a, is a work in progress. And I think it's, um, it's a career long work in progress. And that's actually kind of an exciting thing. I, I, I suspect that my voice now is a little different than it was five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, what I, um, uh, I think the things that would characterize my writing voice are, Hopefully, uh, logic, um, simplicity. I'm I'm always really okay. trying so to. So there is a question from Glenn in the economy. chat. He said, "You have um, both suggested needing language to talk about more. one's voice. You have alluded to and, this a bit. Uh, I wonder how you describe your own unique I, voices. You know, I, Are I there do love a great turn of phrase that is going to be memorable. Uh, and so I like just and and." You know, you can't have every sentence cluttered with those in academic writing, but I do hope to have a few moments that people would remember a sentence uh, just for the words that are chosen and the way that it helps them to think about something. So that's that's how I think about my my voice. It's a great question and it's really been on our mind because of this study that we're currently doing about writer's voice in health researchers. Um, so I think one of the things I'm always aiming for is I'm always trying to be a little bit lyrical. I want there to be a kind of a music or a cadence to my writing. Uh, and I work at that, but I also work at where, where does it belong and where is Lorelai just getting a little carried away with herself and the lyricism is not helping in this paragraph or this section. Um, I, want, I want people to read my work and hear that and think, oh, this must be Lorelai, even if they haven't seen the author. And I think that might be one of the, it's one of the identifiable features I'm trying to cultivate. At the same time, I want to be, um, I want my voice to be incisive. I don't want it to dither around. I want my voice to get to the point, particularly around really complex issues. So I try and organize my writing in a way that there's this kind of right into the point and then layer on some of these complexities. And I have certain strategies I use in how I write a sentence or how I organize a paragraph to try and get that sort of a laser focus and then elaboration. And I think of that as part of my voice. And then like Chris, I wanna be memorable. Nothing makes me happier than to coin a term that I think I'm going to hear other people use in my next set of conference presentations that I listen to six months later. So being able to craft the words for a thing that we all recognize once it's been named, but didn't have the words for before, I think of that as part of the voice I'm aiming for. It's not exactly voice. I think it's something a little different, but it's always, it really excites me. And I get carried away. Sometimes I craft phrases for stuff and my co-authors will say, no, we have words for that. And they're perfectly fine. You don't need to coin in your terms for everything. So I'll maybe, I'll maybe start. The study is obviously underway, um, but there are, there's a range of voices that authors consciously describe themselves aiming for. So um, there's sort of a cluster of participants at the moment who say, I'm really aiming So Glenn has a follow-up, which I was going to ask as well, similarly. Kinds of words like I don't know if you can disclose part of what you have learned in the study about voices, but are there voices um, not there like yours in say, health professions looking, education that you nonetheless, I'm, I'm enjoy, nonetheless enjoy, not so people but styles or voices have in general? What have you learned from what you have heard so far about the variety of voices? In our community, in their voice that they can describe, and there are others who talk about the use of metaphor and imagery as something very conscious that they're trying to do as part of their voice. So already we can see that 
there are different voices. What's interesting is that I would say at this point, most people are, are describing the same features that they're strategically using. So people are using register, formal or conversational. They're using um, what linguists call stance, the extent to which the writer writes themselves into the text so that you hear them there rather than being not in the text at all. Um, features like engagement, which is how writers write readers into the text. So you, you hear them saying, you know, dear reader, you must consider such and such. So the same and imagery and metaphor and illusion. So people talk about the same strategies regardless of what kind of voice they're aiming for. I think we all have the same finite set of linguistic tools available to us that we play with in different and, so and it's interesting it's because one of the things that we've talked about in identifying project, people that we would kind of want to interview to for, for this right. study is uh, what is voice anyway? How do you know it when you see it? How would we actually define it? And what's particularly challenging is how do we find people who have a a strong, a potentially identifiable, even a likable voice, but that is not ours. That is not how we would have written things because you know you can tend to just recapitulate your own style and say, oh, I like that, I like that. And you realize that it's actually all people that are kind of broadly using the same strategies that you use. You know, To this question, are there voices that you nonetheless enjoy that are not really your style? From time to time, I really enjoy people who write with a very lyrical style which you don't see very much in scientific uh, uh, writing. You can find it on the edges of scientific writing. Um, one of the people that we interviewed wrote a, um, uh, basically a reflective uh, piece in a, in a journal that just took my breath away in terms of the, the imagery that she managed to get away with in, and put it into a medical journal. I, it was one of the most striking things that I've ever read, certainly not my voice, um, but just beautiful to see it in this unexpected place. You don't go to a medical journal thinking that you're going to find something that's almost poetic in the way that it kind of conjures up images. And so, so uh, yeah, I, I like that when I see it. Does it belong in, in a, you know, a standard empiric piece of writing? Um, it shouldn't dominate it probably, but you can find moments of it in some, uh, some people. I have a, a colleague who's a, a fiction novelist as well as an academic writer. And there are bits of, of kind of rhythm and imagery in her academic writing that, that she recognizes the separation between the two, but, but you can see how they influence one another. And that's very in, it's very interesting and exciting to see how people are doing that. Not something I would necessarily put into my own writing, um, but, it, but it's interesting to be able to identify it and think about what it's doing for people and how they're using it and manipulating it. I'll, I'll start just with a simple thing. I, I, um, I would spend some time talking about what you want the piece of writing to do. What do you, what do you mm -hmm. hope that it will do and, in the and world? And here I'm with Estella uh, and Christina. What are you like hoping I was to also surprised by how, how are you wanting people, people to react? Of their voice What's going to make you proud like, about this piece of work? For people like um, Stella and Christina, I think we, people sometimes we don't think very much about those bigger issues. Said, they think, well, I'm going to write up my study and then get it to, published somewhere. Or you mentor a lot of people um, who are But I think if you can look a little bit beyond that in terms of the way that the work might impact the people that you hope to reach, um, what would be your then message that gets you thinking a little bit about well, if that's what the, I want writing, to should they be paying attention then what are some of the ways that I might say that and that I might be maybe uniquely positioned or distinctly or understanding what their voice are to, to be, be able with. to express that and and then I think you can start you know 
bringing in some of those things that start to become you know, recognized as, as, as voice. I, I would say, you know, to Stella's comment, it surprises her how conscious people are of their voice. In this uh, study that we've been doing, not everybody is that conscious of their voice. Some people are, but some people have really struggled to be able to describe it. Uh, we've pointed out things to them and they'll say, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but thanks for that interpretation. So I think there are, there, you know, there's a spectrum of how deliberate and conscious people are about this. Uh, some people have a distinct voice, but don't necessarily manufacture it in a really conscious way. And others are actually meticulously deliberate about the things that they do to create that thing that you see on the page. I would add, and I don't have proof of this, but I have a strong belief that clarity of story has to precede um, all of this artistry. You have to have clarity on the story. That's not to say that the story can't become more refined through the artistry, but you've got to be clear first. What is the story that we're going to tell? How are we going to use the study? to tell the story. And so doing that first, I think, and, and the book is 99% focused on that. There's only a few chapters in the book that that discuss explicitly or allude implicitly to issues. Well, any thoughts and on that's that? because we do think it's kind of a next level um, of development for writers. And we wanted this to be kind of a first text that anyone could go to and find useful. If we write another book on writing, I suspect it will have a lot more about voice in it. What I, the other comment I would make to the reflections that Stella and Christina have made in the chat is that I think most people would say, geez, I'm not consciously thinking about voice. Number one, because you've never had a conversation about voice as a writer. And number two, probably related because you don't have a vocabulary for having that conversation. So the one chapter that's in the book actually sets out the basic vocabulary for thinking about voice, the three features we use linguistically to achieve voice in our writing. And once you have that vocabulary, then you can start to think about what do I want to sound like? And then read other people and say, do I wanna sound like that? No, that's not, that's not really what I'm going for. Do I wanna sound like that? Not quite. And then, take things from people that you think are, are working well and assemble your own voice. We're all borrowing from each other, from the things we read that we found captivating. So, so just keep your ears tuned and borrow things that work well. Uh, well, I've already told you what mine is. I would like to know more about writer's voice. And for me, it's actually, uh, it, it's a long road home. Because when I look at the, at the published literature on writer's voice, nobody knows what it is. Nobody in rhetoric, nobody in communication. Linguists have tools for analyzing it in writing, but really this idea of what is writer's voice once you get beyond creative writing. Great. So we're about um, to finish the episode and this is the curiosity habit. So I have so to end with this really question. What's your next curiosity in your writing endeavors, teaching, writing, here whatever? That I could contribute. Well, if I, I'll build on that, but in I a different way. So, um, you know, the, the the wonderfully fun thing about working with Lorelai on this large project, this book, and then some subsequent work on writer's voice, uh, is that for me, it's been a constant exercise in trying to raise my own game uh, so that I can keep up. And so as we move into discussing things that really require, um, you know, some more technical knowledge and more background. Uh, that's the next challenge for me: is uh, how do I how do I, how do I remain a credible uh, uh, collaborator? Um, that you know, and and that's 
you know, that Lorelai shaking her head and I, and, and I recognize that I'm a credible collaborator, but this, this feels like an area where I've got Please. some catching up to do. So that's actually fun. Um, there, you know, nothing is better uh, than being in the late part of your mid-career and feeling like there's whole new things that you need to go and learn in order that you can contribute something useful and interesting to the conversation and to the world. Um, so that's, you know, that's very exciting for me. I, 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 mm -hmm. I, I could never, ever have imagined that this would be part of what I accomplished in my professional life. So it's been, you know, this has been exciting and the, the, the future of being able to actually learn more in this area, fantastic. And this, I imagine I'm speaking for everybody, but it's the same for all Thank of us, Sarah. I guess. And being able to learn and have that language has been critical for many of us who are kind of developing our own styles and, Thanks, and writing. And I love what you said, Chris, about it's an evolution, like being um, frustrated because you haven't been there, but thinking that there is a point that you have to reach. It's probably not the right way of thinking it. It's, it's just progressive and you will have your moments and you will be fine at the end of the day. I would like to thank you both for this great conversation. I also want to add, I look forward for a co-keynote about writing. I don't know how you do a keynote about writing, but if the two of you can create it around the book, I'll be there. So please let us know. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here today, being an audience. It's so great to have faces around. Do appreciate your questions as well. And to everybody who is listening and will be listening to this episode, thank you as well for tuning in. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.